tonight we're in Romans 1, just verses 16 and 17. And what we're going to do is take this gospel message that Paul talks about, and we're going to compare it to the gospel message in, Je in Jehovah's Witnesses, in Mormonism, in Catholicism, uh, among other things. But that's kind of your little preview. <laughs> so we'll look at the major difference between Ro the Romans gospel, the gospel of the Bible, versus those other groups. Um, but here we are, Romans 1, verse 16. This is the epic verse. It says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Some verses grab your heart. You know, trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding. That's a really important verse in my own life. Um, in, but some, some verses grab your guts. Like they don't so much grab your heart, but they grab you by the guts. And this, to me, this is one of those verses. This verse grabs my guts. It's like a rallying cry to go and preach the gospel and be unashamed and stand unashamed before anyone about this one particular message, the gospel of Jesus Christ. I will stand completely unashamed in front of anybody. Um, what does that mean to, to, to not be ashamed? Ultimately, to not be ashamed of the gospel. I think it means you are willing to suffer rejection over this issue. I'm not ashamed of it. You want to reject me? Fine. I'm not ashamed of it. You want to make fun of me? Fine. I'm not ashamed of it. You want to mock and ridicule? I am not ashamed of this truth, of this message. Paul knows that people will reject the gospel. If you've read the book of Acts, you know that Paul knows that some people will reject the gospel. They'll reject the gospel and the person bringing the message of the gospel. They'll reject all of the above and sometimes angrily and sometimes bitterly. Some people will mock and they'll ridicule and they'll make fun of and they'll tease and they'll, they'll do that sort of thing. Um, some people, they really think that if they can think of a mean joke then they must have won the argument. And this is really, this, that's where their intellect operates on. It's like, if I can think of a sarcastic joke to say about you as a Christian, it must prove that you're, you're a fool. And, well, that's what the Bible calls a scoffer. And there's a synonym for scoffer in the Bible. Fool. <laughs> the, the, the shoe's on the other foot in this case. Uh, but some, they don't, they're not done with mocking. They're not done with ridicule. They have to attack. They have to attack. So we're going to be mocked. We may be attacked physically. We may be attacked in our, in our career, in our job. I've, I've had it where someone tried to get me in trouble at my job because I was preaching the gospel. And, um, and I, wasn't, I was doing it on my break and all this kind of thing. But um, I just did it anyways. Nothing happened. So that was nice. But not all stories end like that, do they? And some people may well lose a job or lose their very lives or have their children taken away. Or some other terrible thing happened because of the gospel. So this, this leads us as Christians to start to make excuses. Because I don't want to be mocked. That doesn't feel good. <laughs> it does not feel good to me at all. I don't want to be ridiculed. I don't want to be harassed. I don't want to be discomforted for the sake of this message. And after all, you know, if they're mocking me, then I'm probably not really effectively sharing anyway. So I may as well just, you know, preach the gospel at all times. Use words if necessary if necessary. And so then I become more and more quiet and more and more reserved. And this, this is a plague on America in particular and other countries as well. But the thing is, the generation before ours and the one before that, I say ours, but we're lots of different generations in the room here. Steve's the generation I'm talking about, the two generations ago. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But, but think about this. Think about your parents and your grandparents. 
How did they feel about talking openly about religious issues? And so many of them were just like, well, we won't even do it. My grandfather's in the hospital now, and I am, am now going, nobody in my family knows what he believes. Because they would never talk about it. They would never talk about it. And so then they finally go to him like, are you, what are you? And he's like, oh, I believe in the Lord. And you're like, really? Wow, why didn't we know about this? Why didn't we know about this? You know, I'm glad that you have that, that, that statement of faith. But you're like a leader in this, in this family. You should, be t- you should be preaching it to us. You should be handing it down to the next generation. But yet there's this excuses that come because I don't want people to feel uncomfortable. You know, there's two things you don't talk about, religion and politics. Or in other words, anything important. Like, only talk about games you like and music you enjoy. Only talk about funny jokes and what was on the movies and the show last week. But don't talk about things that are important, valuable, and really affect people's lives. That's a weird cultural thing that we have going on. It's really strange. <clears throat> so none of that slows Paul down. It doesn't matter if it will offend you. It doesn't matter if it will, if it will cause you to mock and ridicule him. It doesn't matter if it will cause you to pick up stones and throw them at his face. He will preach the gospel. He'll dodge. <laughs> he might leave town after he's preached it, you know, but he's going to preach. Let me read to you Acts. In fact, if you would flip there, Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. Now you remember Paul the Apostle, he preaches boldly the gospel and he is routinely harassed, mocked, ridiculed, beat up, stoned, threatened with death. There are people who plan to kill him. People who say, you know what, we're not going to eat. We're fasting until we kill this guy. Now that's never happened to me that I'm aware of. <laughs> I don't think it's happened to me. So Paul's experienced some pretty hardcore, pretty serious stuff. At one time, he was stoned until they thought he was dead. They dragged him out of the city and left him there. Um, now, it may be that he was dead. All they know is he got back up. Later on, he talks about a vision he had that he saw, he saw heaven, basically. That may have been at the, po- at the point where that happened, where he, he even goes, I don't know if it was a vision or if I was really caught up. It was kind of fuzzy what happened there, but um, interesting stuff. <clears throat> but look at what he says in Acts 20, 22 through 24. And see, now I go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me. I am unmoved in my commitment to follow and preach the truth of Christ. I know I will suffer. I know I'll be enchained. And I I know I will be in tribulations. I will suffer greatly, but I will not stop. I love this guy. Nor do I count my life dear to myself. This life, not important. Preaching the message of Christ, that's what's most important. So that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. He looks at possible martyrdom in Jerusalem and and he calls it, not tragedy, he calls it finishing his race with joy. He's either crazy or he understands something really important. <laughs> I know which one I think it is. Now, this isn't his first round of persecutions or his second or his third. And it seems to me that when you go through hardship, the second time around is worse or easier, depending on how you responded the first time. I remember uh, people I've known who've gone through cancer and have gone through it more than once. And you, and you know the impact it has if you know someone like this. Or they go through cancer, they go through chemo, they recover, and then they get cancer again, maybe a different kind, maybe in a different location. 
but they go back, they get cancer again. And now the doctor's telling them about the chemo plan, about the, about what they're going to do in the schedule of, of procedures and stuff. And they sit there and they have to come to terms with it. And they go, do I even want to bother? And that's a really tough choice because round two, I know everything that's going to happen to me now. I know what it feels like. I remember, I remember how I felt after those treatments. I remember what it did to me. Paul, he remembers what it felt like to be stoned, to have aches and pains that, that, and scars and wounds that continued to last. It's not like he just healed perfectly every time it happened. He knew, he knew what this was like. He seemed to have like a constant eye issue that was plaguing him and pulling him down. But he just keeps going. He just keeps going and going. Paul is unmoved because while he knows persecution is coming, he also knows his eternal joy is coming. And to him, though persecution is a very real present reality, so is the joy of eternal life. And that's what makes the difference. It's not that I ignore persecution. It's that I can look beyond it and see the joy that's set before me. And then I can press on. So Paul, um, he was not ashamed of the gospel, though he was ashamed of a lot of stuff. He was very ashamed of the way he had behaved before he got saved. He was ashamed of of persecuting believers. He says that he's not worthy to be called an apostle, but yet God, by his grace, gave him this calling. But he's not ashamed of Christ. He's not ashamed of the gospel. And you should not be ashamed either. And if someone throws your past into your face as something you should be ashamed of, it's all the more reason why you're not ashamed of this. You know, I've done this or I've done that, but I've been graced and forgiven, which is why I lift up the gospel. I don't lift up myself. We should not be ashamed of this. The dictionary uh, has a couple different entries for the word ashamed, but one of them is this. I think is interesting. It says, restrained by anticipation of shame. Restrained by anticipation of shame. If I share with this person, I might end up feeling embarrassed or awkward or somehow ashamed after I do it. So I restrain myself and I don't do it. And um, that's what it, he talks about there. It's interesting. It's interesting. Um, we have uh, done some outreaches here in Bellflower with the city and with different churches in our area. I'm going to tell you a little story about, um, about one we did not too long ago. It was a few years back where we, for Halloween, we did this big outreach and we had on, on stage, we had uh, the gospel presented. We actually had Ray Comfort come out and he shared the gospel message. And then we did it another year again, a year later, and he comes out again. Now, the first year we did it, there was one family who complained. We don't like that this guy came out and shared this stuff with people. Then the second year that we did it, the same family complained again. And they said, we can't believe you invited him back. Like, you know, after we told you, you shouldn't, obviously. We are special. Um, and we know what's best for the universe. But, but they, were, they were bothered by this. And so this news came to us as we had like a pastor's meeting. Now, I don't control this group at all. Or none of this would have happened. <laughs> but, um, but they do this meeting and they're talking and they're debriefing after this event because we've all sort of participated and did our part to try to get the gospel out. And the statement is, you know what? We don't want to offend people. It's supposed to be a family thing. It's supposed to be a thing. You know, the city used to do it, but they ran out of money. So we took it over <laughs> so we could preach the gospel. And, um, and we don't want to bother anybody. So we just, you know, how about, and they look at me. Hey, Mike, you're, you always bring people who hand out tracts. How about that's our gospel preaching? You make sure that those tracks get handed out and then we just won't do anything like that on the stage. The stage will just be for like other puppet show or other things that aren't related to that. We don't want to offend anybody. 
my response, along with most of the pastors there, the majority was, so? Somebody complained. Like, it's not like I don't care about them, but I don't care about their complaint. It's not going to stop us. Of course, people are going to complain. We expect that. It's called the gospel. This is what happens. It's an offense to some. They complain. No big deal. But sadly, then someone else got up and they said, a pastor says, well, you know, and I, can't, I wish I could remember exactly how his speech went because it was really interesting. Um, he says, well, you know, in so-and-so's book, they recite statistics of this and such and such. And outreaching in this style just doesn't work. It just doesn't work, guys. And to which I had some things to respond, but it being a large group meeting, um, you know, it was going back and forth discussions. And then finally, someone in charge said, bing, bing, I'm going to make an executive decision. We'll talk about this later. <laughs> so <laughs> didn't like the disagreement. Some people can't handle this agreement. I, I can handle this agreement and then go out to get a cup of coffee with you later. It's no problem at all. But they were not necessarily that way. Oddly enough, do you know that the truth is this type of outreach does work? And statistically speaking, the churches that are shrinking the most are the most liberal, compromised, ashamed of the gospel churches. They're the ones shrinking. And the groups that are growing the most and the fastest are the ones that people would think are like, oh, that just doesn't work. You need to get with the times. You know how like we just read the Bible and then just say what it says out loud like some kind of crazy person. (laughs) So, um, yeah, that's the truth of it, though. I don't know what book he was quoting, but it was not actually accurate. Um, then the, uh, the, pa- the pastor who's sort of in charge of this stuff, and I'm not trying to name names cause I'm just want to teach us a lesson through this. He uh, pulls me aside. He's like, Hey Mike, can we go out and get some, get some food? And he actually went out to lunch with like every pastor there, I think to have like his own private conversation with them, which is fine. And he says to me, Mike, you know, I don't feel like we, we have to preach the gospel at everything we do. And I'm like, you're right. We don't, but we have a big group of people and we have a stage. I'm like, crowd plus stage, gospel. Like, this is a really easy equation for me, you know? I don't have to preach the gospel when I'm, like, just driving down the street. And I'm like, that guy's got his window down. Hey, did you know? You know, like, (laughs) at everything I do. But this seems to be a really good opportunity. And so he says to me, he goes, Mike, can't you preach the gospel without even using words? Like, just by the way that you you, you go and you order your coffee and you sit there and and, and you just are yourself. To which I said, no. (laughs) And this bothered him. He actually got visibly upset. And I was like, don't you know what preach means? You can't preach anything without words. That's what preaching is. The gospel is information. Information must be communicated with words. Or some like, maybe if I got my cup of coffee and did a dramatic play, (laughs) you know, that, that somehow communicated the message of the gospel. I'm like, you know, (laughs) Maybe if I could do that, but I'm not very good at that sort of thing. So I use words. Um, You can be a good example and a witness in a sense, a witness of what it means to follow Jesus just by the life you live, but you can't communicate the gospel without words. I think that we have to learn this principle that we are not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. And though someone gets upset or someone complains or someone ridicules, I I like what one pastor friend of mine said in in this whole meeting. And he was like, you know what? If Jesus isn't welcome, I'm not welcome. If it's it's such a big deal that you want to shut us down because of the gospel, then we're going to keep preaching the gospel until you shut us down. And then we'll just do it somewhere else. Some people are naturally bold like this. Some of you, maybe you're like, man, that's me. I'm like, I I get excited when someone disagrees with me. 
Most of us are not like that. Most of us are like, oh, no, <laughs> it was going so good. And so for those that are not like that, what I want to encourage you is unnatural boldness is exactly what we're called to as Christians. It's, but this I'm not ashamed of. In this one area, be bold. You can be, you can be quiet and reserved in every area of life. But when it comes to the gospel, just be bold. You don't have to necessarily go street witnessing. It just, the issue is that you have an open mouth when it comes to preaching and proclaiming the truths of Christ. And when you get that natural sense of, oh, I don't know if I really want to go through what's about to happen when I say this. If the, if the, if the this is the gospel, it's worth saying. If the this is your opinion about a sports team, fine, keep it to yourself. Why incur the wrath of others over your sports team? But over Jesus, it's worth it. It's worth it. The name of Christ. And then he gets into why, right? In Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation. This is the why. This is why I'm not ashamed. It's not just an important truth. It's the most important and essential truth for humanity because I can be saved by this truth. I can be saved from sin and hell, from the second death. This is not a social gospel. This is not a social gospel. It's not just do good to your brothers, do good to your fellow man. I know the gospel, right? Yeah, it's like go to church and be a good person. You don't know the gospel. It's about salvation from my sin, reunited with God in his grace and mercy, given the righteousness of Christ. That's the gospel. And And then he talks about how it happens. It's by faith. Faith here is salvation by faith or salvation for everyone who believes. Everyone, if they just believe they can be saved, this is the only qualifier for salvation. Now, if you go, Mike, where's repentance in this mix? Actually, well, faith towards Christ involves repentance. You're not turning your heart towards the Lord unless you're turning it from sin. So even faith itself involves that. But, um, but then it says to anyone, it says to the Jew or the Greek. That's interesting. For everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. I'll come back to the why is it the Jew first in just a second. So the, the not ashamed part is this, and we've got to drill it into our hearts. There's one issue that's worth dividing over above all others, and it's the gospel message. It's worth it. It's worth it if people get mad at me on social media. It's worth it if people don't want to talk to me afterwards. It's, it's worth it if they hate my guts or even want to try to kill me. It's the gospel. I'm not ashamed of it. I will, I will be bold and truthful and honest about it. Um, that's worth it. It's worth suffering for. It's worth arguing about. It's worth dying for. That's this message. Because it brings salvation to the souls of man. Now, what's interesting is this is you can't actually live and die for Christ if you want to live and die for Christ. You can't really do it unless you also live and die for the message of Christ. Because I can't secretly, privately live for the Lord, but not have that impact my public interaction with others. It'll, of course, have an impact. And if you're like me, you struggle a little bit with this because sometimes you want to share, but you're not really sure what words to use or how to, how to engage. And my encouragement is, is graciously, kindly, gently, just blurt it out. <laughs> and don't worry too much about having the perfect method because it's not our method of presentation that has to be perfect. It's the gospel message itself that, that the Holy Spirit grabs and does the work in the heart of the person who hears it. So you don't have to be perfect in your presentation. Um, gosh, like what was that thing Greg Laurie said? That's what I used to always think. Like I'd encounter someone, I'm like, I want to share with them. And I'm like, man, I was at Harvest Crusade and he said this thing. It was so good. I can't remember it now. All I can remember is that like that guy needs Jesus, you know, and 
Well, just go for it. Just go for it. <clears throat> the social gospel, on the other hand, um, by contrast to the gospel, the actual biblical gospel, the social gospel is this thing where, and some churches fall for it, and some Christians fall for it, where I preach, be a good person, be kind, fight social ills, like let's let's stop poverty, let's stop homelessness, let's take in let's take in refugees, let's do good things, let's help our fellow man. The thing is, those are good things to do. Like that's those are all good things to do, but that's not the gospel. I mean, you're not going to go to heaven because you helped refugees. So we shouldn't call it the social gospel. You could call it the impact of the gospel in your life as it relates to society, but it's not the social gospel. It's not a gospel. I mean, we all want those good things, but the social gospel is wrong, not because it tells you to do good things. It's wrong because it's not the gospel and it lacks the power of God to save those who believe. You can believe a, a social gospel and, and go to hell. So then it becomes really insufficient for that. Um, this is, I like guys that are willing to talk about sin, willing to say the word hell, willing to say Jesus alone, and uh, willing to be honest about this thing because then they're really coming to the gospel. But many pastors nowadays are... They're ashamed. They're ashamed. And they distract you with good intentions while stripping the gospel from you. Like, I mean, the gospel's good and all, but don't you think we should be focusing more on foster care? No. No, I don't. Well, the gospel's good, but don't you think we should be really, you know, get the plank out of your own eye, Mike, first? No. No, this, that's not how that verse applies. Like, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> like, that's not it. The gospel message is the most important. It's the essential. Um, they end up denying the power. And this is interesting because you can actually see some pastors do this through their career. They focus on the social issues, but they kind of neglect the pure gospel message of Christ. And as years go by, they tend to show their, their true colors over time. Rob Bell is a good example of this. Rob Bell is the name of a pastor who, um, he was part of the emergent church movement and he wrote some books and... Um, did some stuff, <laughs> but his preaching initially started with like social gospel focus and just kind of neglecting the true message of Christ. Just not really saying it's wrong, just not really talking about it much. And then after a while, he eventually comes out with a book where he confesses that he doesn't even think like, like how could Gandhi go to hell? Gandhi's not at hell. How do you know that? And I'm like, <laughs> like it's not up to me, right? God's given us the truth right here in his word. It's not up to me. Oh, you've heard stories about this guy Gandhi you've never met. So now you're just going to discount the whole per the whole teaching of hell in the Bible. Because you figure he must have been a good guy. Well, read more about the guy. <laughs> You'll find out that no one is good but God. Well, Rob Bell wrote this, this issue about, and you can remember his name, Rob Bell, no hell. That's, that's his, <laughs> that's, that's it. Some people sounded alarms early in his ministry and they tried to say, watch out for this guy. He's a social gospel dude. He's not into the true gospel. And people were like, wow, you're being judgmental, man. Like, come on, the body of Christ is bigger than that. And then they were proved right. And so it's just good to notice if people proclaim the gospel message. Is your pastor, your teacher, the people you love, the people you listen to, do they preach the gospel? Or do they preach around it? In which case, you should avoid them as well. <laughs> as much as they avoid the gospel, you should avoid them. Um, then it goes on, it says that this gospel message is for the Jew first and also for the Gentile. And that's something that stumbles people a little bit. Like, why is the gospel for the Jew first and also for the Gentile? And I think that this is not about um, some sort of racial pride. Uh, really, according to the Bible, there's one race, the human race. Um, God says that he chose the Jewish people. He specifically says in the scripture he did not pick them because they were great, but because they were not great. 
And so he wants to show his power. He chose the weak things of the world to shame the wise. That's what he's doing with them. But the reason why the Jew first is because the Jews had the promises. They were given the Old Testament scriptures. They were, they were given all these promises and God fulfills them. So let me read to you Matthew 10. It says this. Um, these 12 Jesus sent out and commanded them saying, as he sends out his 12 disciples, do not go into the way of the Gentiles and do not enter the city of, of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go preach saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So Jesus initially sends his disciples while he's still alive, just to the Jews. In Matthew 15, 24, Jesus is having a conversation with a Gentile woman. He says, he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, to the Jewish people. Then in Acts 13, 46, we read this. Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. And they had just preached it in the synagogue. It was necessary. It was required. We had to give it to you first. But since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. So the gospel went to the Jews first because God promised it to them. He promised, I'm going to give it to you. So he gives it to the, to the carriers of the promise. But it didn't go to the Jews only. It's just, Jew first literally just means the order in which the message was preached. It was proclaimed first to the Jews so that God shows they're still involved in his promise he still is active and working in the Jewish people. And then he carries the message out to the whole world. Um, so it's the order in which the gospel is proclaimed. That's the Jew first, then the Gentiles. It's not an exclusion of anybody. Acts 1 verse 8, Jesus put it this way. I, I like this way of thinking of it. He said, but you shall receive power, talking to the disciples, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea. So Jerusalem is the capital of Israel, rightly so. And then all Judea, so it's he's saying, then you're going to go out through all the land of Israel, or at least most of it, the land of Judea, that's a region. And then Samaria, who were, who were not Jews. And then, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth or to the end of the earth. And so it's a progression. It's, it's the order of, in which the gospel is proclaimed. It's kind of like if you got saved and you have like a family that doesn't know the Lord, and you feel like, man, I've got to tell them. I like owe it to them to tell them. And then you go and you continue telling others beyond that as well. The Old Testament says this as well. This is interesting. Isaiah 49.6. It says that this is predicted. This Jew first and the Gentile. It says, indeed, he says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. So here we have an Old Testament reference to God's plan of right to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. It'll go out to everybody in that order. So as Gentiles, we'll get here in Romans chapter 11, how we're grafted in to the promises and, and to, to Israel and what that means and how that works and how God's promise to Israel is not over yet. He's not done with them. He's not cast them off like that. Um, and Paul, as we keep going through, he's going to say that, show us that the gospel is the central message of the whole Bible. And he'll actually be going to a lot of Old Testament to verify this. And it's exciting as we get there. At least it is for me. Um, so hopefully you'll soak up some of that. <laughs> so then verse 17, as we go on, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Now he's going to be preaching about the gospel. And that's going to occupy the rest of the book largely. Verse 17, for in it, the righteousness of God in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith in the gospel 
we have a, a, a revelation. In fact, that's the same word as what is as the book of Revelation. Apocalypse is what the word ultimately is, but that doesn't mean doomsday. It actually means unveiling or revealing. So God's righteousness is revealed in the gospel message, which is what? Salvation to whoever believes. By faith, I am made righteous. By faith, I am made righteous. And it's revealed in a few ways, I think. The gospel message reveals that God's righteousness is the standard. In order to go to heaven, I need to be as righteous as God. But then it's also revealed as accessible through Christ. He gives me his righteousness. I don't make my own. I don't manufacture it. I, I'm given it. This answers that, quest, that question that really bothers people. How can a just God send anyone to heaven? It should bother people, shouldn't it? Why would, if God's holy and we've all sinned, how could any of us ever go to heaven? Because the righteousness of God is revealed through the gospel message imparted to us. Romans 3.26, it'll say this way. We'll get there later, but to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. How can he? See, if I go to heaven, he's not just unless he justifies me and then puts me in heaven. Now he's just and the justifier because a just God would send me to hell. But if he justifies me first, it's just as if I'd never sinned. <laughs> okay, then we get this difficult phrase in verse 17. Uh, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Now I've read... Uh, lots of commentaries on this verse. And if you've read through Romans, you've stumbled on this verse and probably scratched your head a little bit. Like from faith to faith, what does that really mean? And I love when you read commentaries and they tell you, obviously, like obviously it means this. And then you read another commentary and it goes, clearly it means this. And they don't agree. Then you read a third commentary that doesn't agree with the other two. And they go, there can be no doubt as to the meaning. It's this. This is a great place where we can say, look, people like dogmatic answers to every question. But ultimately, it's foolish if we act like we can be dogmatically certain about everything we know. There are some things we can't, but there's much we can't. Here's one of those, I'm not. And for someone to be like, oh, there's no doubt about it. It obviously means, I'm just like, you're just probably blustering. You're, you're just... You're just saying stuff because you think that to, for preaching to be powerful, it has to be 100% certain about everything you say. And this is just silly. Uh, that works if you only ever hear one preacher. But the minute you hear another and you go, wait a minute, they don't agree on everything. You realize that there are some issues, essentials, we hold to without compromise. And some non-essentials where we go, on these issues, maybe there's some wiggle room. I don't know. I think this, but I can see how you might have a point there. So on this issue, um, from faith to faith, what does it mean? Well, uh, my, my, my thought is that there's no doubt about it. Um, I think it probably is referring to faith, from faith to faith as like a progression. Um, Paul's going to do this through the book of Romans consistently where he goes, he shows how in the Old Testament they were saved by faith and in here and now in new covenant times we're saved by faith as well. So I think from faith to faith, Abraham was saved by faith. Romans 4, we'll talk about that. And then now you're saved by faith. He just talked about how we're saved by faith. That's the, the righteousness of God is revealed. It's from faith to faith, as in it's always been about faith from the very beginning. Um, other people see, they see different, different stuff here. They see, um, we're growing in faith as Christians. Like you, you first, you're saved by faith and then you grow in faith. And that's kind of a progression from faith to faith. Um, uh, another interpretation, I think this is Pastor Gary's, our pastor here. He thinks it means um, 
what was it, Paula? You were mentioning it the other day. You heard him say it. That it's, we're encouraged by each other's mutual faith. Like, and, and he mentioned that earlier a couple verses ago. That we might be encouraged by our mutual faith. And so, from faith. Your faith stirs up my faith. It's from faith to faith. And there's a truth there. When I proclaim the gospel, they see my faith and the trust in the gospel, and maybe it stirs up theirs. Um, is that what it's saying? I don't think so. Am I allowed to disagree with Pastor Gary? Well, if not, we're all in trouble. <laughs> this is a non-essential issue, and it's, it's great to see we have some liberty to disagree even about the Bible on certain non-essential issues, and to, to be okay. Just don't tell them. <laughs> I'm just playing. Um, yeah. <laughs> the point, I think, of this verse is that you never, ever have works for justification. It's from faith to faith. Like there, at no point is works involved in how you get saved. It's a result of getting saved. It's evidence of salvation. It's proof of faith. It's all that. But it's not how you get saved. Yeah, Marley? Yeah. Yeah, there's a few different challenges. Most of them do from faith to faith. One from faith for faith. One is uh, from faith to, from first to last which is really uh, an interpretation because it really is just as from faith to faith. Um, so yeah, but it's, it's a challenging verse. And one, one day everyone will realize how perfectly right I am about everything. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, but hopefully it's an area where we can realize there's, there's some things we don't know. So we never have works for justification. Not when you get saved. I, I like the, 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 the song that says, Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. I love that song. I love that statement. Rock of Ages. Great, great lyrics. Uh, maybe I'll do it one day. People will probably complain, though, if I do. Because it's old. So we don't get saved by works. We get this, right? But sometimes after we're walking with Christ, we start to think we maintain our salvation through works. Like God gives me a, a blank slate, but I have to keep it blank. That's just not true. It's never like that. Let me read to you Galatians 3, verses 2 through 3, because they're dealing with this very issue. He says, This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? See, they got saved and they knew it was by faith. But later on, they started, well, learning better about, about how they have to live this certain way or they lose their salvation. And that's just wrong. And that's just wrong. And so you get saved and you stay saved by faith in the grace of God. That's an important lesson for us to learn. This is the sola fide of the Reformation, which is our 500th anniversary for the Ref of the Reformation this year. Did you know that? Yeah. yeah. Um, that's the sola fide, that it's by faith alone. But it's bigger than that. If the Reformation never happened, this is still... This is the issue, one of the major issues of biblical Christianity versus almost every other religion out there is the idea that we're saved by faith alone, through grace alone. Please turn to Romans 11.6. This to me is a key, key verse in the issue of how we're saved. Romans 11.6. I'll bring it up again later. I want to burn it into our hearts and minds that this verse means something very important. It doesn't roll off the tongue. It's not poetic. It's just really important truth. It says, and if by grace, our salvation, if it's by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. You know what this is? This is the Bible defining its terms for us. 
Just like it defines love in 1 Corinthians 13. So when we go love, that's what love is. How? Because the Bible defined it for us. Here the Bible's defining the terms of grace and works. And it says if it's grace, you can't mix it with works or else that's not even grace. And if it's of works, then you can't mix it with grace or else that's not works. You are going to be saved either by grace or by works, but you can't mix the two. Do you see that in Romans eleven six? If more people saw that, every cult would just cease to exist. <laughs> That's out there. Um, but let me compare this to some other groups. I wouldn't call them a cult. I don't mean to apply that. Um, I don't know if I would use that, that word. But, uh, but Roman Catholicism has a grace plus works doctrine of salvation. And some will say, not really technically, but I say, if you let the Bible define its terms then what you have is grace plus works, which isn't grace and isn't works and is ultimately just a contradiction. Now, this is from the Council of Trent. In the 1500s, the Council of Trent gathered together. It's an ecumenical church council. The Catholic uh, Roman Catholicism says this is a binding church council for all time. This information stays applicable forever. It's written in stone, basically. This is it. Approved by the Pope and the bishops in communion with him and all that. Let me read to you this from the Council of Trent. Um, Uh, It says here, if anyone says that the good works of the one justified are in such manner the gifts of God, that they are not also the good merits works of him justified, or that the one justified by the good works that he performs by the grace of God, see works and grace added, you're performing good works by grace, and that justifies you and you merit, it doesn't make any sense. Let me read that part again. That the one justified by the good works that he performs by the grace of God and the merit of Jesus Christ, whose living member he is, does not truly merit an increase of grace. Eternal life, merit, eternal life, and in case he dies in grace, the attainment of eternal life itself and also an increase of glory, let him be anathema. That anathema word is accursed, uh, really originally meant accursed to hell. And they're saying, if you think that you aren't with the grace of God doing good works that merit you eternal life, then you're a curse to hell. That's the Council of Trent. Now, most modern Catholics would not agree with this anymore, but it's official Catholic doctrine. The church is just shifting like this. Sometimes it wiggles a little away from the official teachings, but eventually it usually comes back. Uh, Let me read on. If anyone saith that the justice received is not preserved and also increased before God through good works. Preserved by good works. Increased by good works. But that the said works are merely fruits and signs of justification obtained, but not a cause of the increase thereof, let him be anathema. Well, I say that the good works that you do are just a sign of the justification you've attained to God. And by definition, I am now under this anathema of the Catholic Church, which is fine because I believe it has no power. Let me read to you again, uh, also from the Council of Trent. So that means the Pope signed off. This is this is ecumenical permanent council. Uh, ecumenical means it's the whole church. If anyone says that the justice received is not preserved. Oh, I already read that to you. Well, there you go. <laughs> I just had to do, I had to copy pasted it twice. That it's preserved and increased before God through through good works. Now, so that's a mingling of good works and grace, isn't it? Let me read 11.6 of Romans again. You've got to learn this verse. If by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. That's not grace, Catholic Church. And if it's by works, it's no longer of grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. 
So that's not works. You let the Bible define its terms. And let's stick to what the text says. In Mormonism, we have um, uh, in 2 Nephi 25-23, that's in the Book of Mormon, it says, and this is really often quoted by Mormons. If you're Mormon, you know this, this phrase by heart. By grace you are saved after all that you can do. After all that you can do. That's not grace. <laughs> Thank you very much. That is not grace. And Mormons know this. They labor under this, this works for salvation. And then grace is mixed and mingled in there in some sort of way that doesn't exactly entirely make sense. But either you pay for it or you don't. Either it's grace or it's works. But they mix this and they, they ignore Romans 11.6. For Jehovah's Witnesses, it has four specific requirements. Four specific requirements for salvation. Uh, one is taking the knowledge of God and Jesus. Of course, this involves false knowledge about Jesus, about him being Michael the Archangel, that kind of stuff. Um, number two, you have to obey God's laws. Now, that not only includes things we read about in the scripture and 1 Corinthians in particular, but it also includes like you can't go to a raffle. That's one of the requirements. Um, you can't have a blood transfusion. You can't salute a flag. You can't serve in the military. And there's a, a bunch of various other things as well that have been pushed on Jehovah's Witnesses, sadly. Number three, you have to belong to Jehovah's, the Jehovah's Witness organization. You have to be associated with God's organization. So I have to be a JW. That's part of it. So um, there is, there's that. <laughs> and number four, you have to be loyal or you have to promote the Jehovah's Witness organization by giving out or selling its material. And this is why you see people go door to door. This is why they do it. In fact, let me read to you from a Jehovah's Witness um, uh, publication. It's called Keep Watch Over Yourselves from page 35. It says that going door to door and witnessing is, quote, a sacred duty, a requirement on which our life depends. What if I tried to motivate you to street witness because of that? Like, Guys, your salvation depends on this. Your life depends on this. You better get out there and do it. It's time to go to a different church. So sad. They use two verses to support this. Can I quote them to you? Romans 10.10. 10, to, to support this idea that, and it's in the same text, keep watch over yourselves, that you have to go out and go door to door. And it's important that you have to know this. It says, for with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. I think what they mean to imply is that with the mouth confession is made, is that you go door to door and you proclaim Jehovah's Witness teachings and that's you confessing with your mouth and that's working towards salvation. What a horrible twisting of the verse, right? And the other one is 1 Corinthians 9, 16. For if I preach the gospel, Paul speaking, I have nothing to boast of for necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Dot, dot, dot. Woe is you if you do not preach the gospel. Necessity is laid upon you. What they don't do is keep reading. Let me read the next verse. He says, For if I do this willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, I've been entrusted with a stewardship. Not, I'll go to hell. It's just that I will fail in the stewardship that I've been entrusted to. You don't have to threaten Paul with hell or any Christian with hell to get them to obey God. You just tell them that God will be bummed out about it. <laughs> And that's an, oh man, God wants me to do that. I'm entrusted with a stewardship. That's all I need to know. Why? Because I'm submitted to him. And that's all, that's all I need to know is that's what he wants. That's what he wants. If you love me, you'll obey my commands. That's it. 
I think that the requirements, whether it's Catholicism, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, or any other type of group, the requirements that they give people to be saved fall into one of two categories. And think about this if you never have. It's kind of interesting. One, the requirements are too low. It's silly stuff, like going door to door. Like, really? You're going to go to heaven because you did this? By joining a, a special organization. It's just silly, silly things. It's less than holiness. Less than holiness. So the requirements are way low. They're way, way low. They're way too low. Or the requirements are just right. In which case, it's holiness. Actual holiness. You have to be holy. In which case, it's unreachable. Which is the whole point of the law. I mean, if you want to see the holy requirements, look at the law. Look at the law and see how it condemns all under sin so that we might know that we need grace. Grace. It's by grace we are saved. And then um, Paul concludes, um, quoting Habakkuk 2.4, where he says, The just shall live by faith. The just, just shall live by faith. And just here meaning those who are righteous, those who are made just, it'll be by faith. He quotes Habakkuk 2.4 a few times. He quotes it here, he quotes it in Galatians, and then him or whoever wrote Hebrews quotes it in the book of Hebrews as well. The idea is... <clears throat> I'm saved by faith. And this is what makes the gospel so glorious. It's, a it's literally, these are words that when received, change a person's life for eternity from the inside out. How can we not get behind this message? How can we not live and die for this message of Christ? Now, the rest of Romans is going to be driving this in a really great detail. Um, there's a couple passages in Romans that some people misuse. When we get to Romans 3, a little bit in Romans 2, where they misuse it to try to say works are involved in being saved. But that's why we're going to teach it all in context as we go, and it should blow that out of the water. Um, but I want to give you a little preview for next week, because next week I'm excited to do this. Um, we're going to talk about um, what everyone knows about God, and evidence for God, and common sense, and um, are there really atheists, and that sort of thing. So, But let's just read a little preview here. Verse 18, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. And then it'll go on and it'll talk about how creation declares God's glory and, and those types of things. So uh, next week we'll look at um, evidence for God's existence and what everybody really does know about God. And what about the pygmy, you know, or, or the person, uh, you know, who had, had not heard the gospel. That was how someone put it to me one time. What about the pygmy in Africa who never heard the gospel message? How are they judged before God? We'll look at that sort of stuff uh, next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we ask that we would be given boldness and courage to proclaim this message of salvation through Christ, that all men have sinned and fallen short of God's glory, that Jesus came, God in the flesh, bore our sins on the cross, died for us, rose again from the dead, and that faith in him Faith in him is all that's required to turn our hearts truly to you, God, in faith, and you save. Lord, may this message go out. We, we pray for, um, for our community right here, and we ask that you would use us as a church to reach them with the gospel even more. And we pray for the world around us, Lord. They need the gospel so, so bad. We pray that you'd, you'd cause the gospel message to invade the ranks of ISIS and to get into countries where it's been banned, uh, like North Korea, uh, to spread further through different locations around the world. We just pray that the name of Christ would be magnified and that we who are here right now just hearing this message, we pray that we would have courage to not be ashamed. In Jesus' name, amen. While I was
what you did for me.